Good evening. I'm Axis. I'm Moner. And you're listening to The Late Night, a horror podcast. Happy holidays, everyone. Happy holidays. Merry, happy Christmas, Kwanzaa. <laughs> um, we hope your Krampus was lovely. And if, we, if you were naughty, we hope you got spanked. And if you were good, we also hope you got spanked. Um, tonight, you know, in the uh, spirit of the season, we will be watching Bob Clark's Black Christmas from 1974. Starring Margot Kidder, Olivia Hussey, and John Saxon. And we'll be following that with Charles E. Sellier Jr.'s Silent Night, Deadly Night from 1984, starring Robert Brian Wilson, Lily Chauvin, and Linnea Quigley. We'll be right back after the tone. Stay tuned. So. Yeah, this month, yeah. this month, like I think, captured for me kind of the uh, the bleak desperation that can lead up to Christmas. You know, like as somebody who's now t minus five days from Christmas, desperately trying to finish, you know, my my actual job so that I can craft nonstop until five a.m. on Christmas morning. Suddenly, these movies, the, the the tone, the feeling, it clicks, you know? It clicks into place. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that, that last minute feeling of desperation and, uh, or, or, and or angst and despair. It's, uh, it's people like, oh, the holidays are great. And I'm kind of like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, do I... Have you ever celebrated yeah, Christmas before? Like, I love Christmas. Like, more than pretty much any time of the year. I, I'm I basically I'm a big old slut for Christmas. I love it. I think it's great. But also I am in excruciating hell every single minute up until it's actually Christmas. <laughs> Which is horrible. And I'm I'm also that way with Halloween. Yeah, and yeah, no, it's exactly like, the same. Yeah. You get there, you're working up to mm-hmm. it, and then you're just kinda like sitting there going, actually one year I got so pissed off I ended up writing notes about how to like take it easier during the next Honestly, Halloween, it makes so. sense. No, I think it's like I I would not define myself as a masochist usually, but Christmas makes me reconsider that because like I know that I love Christmas. What I can't tell you is necessarily why given the fact that I am so stressed leading up to it and I get like, you know, that like post Christmas depression where you're like, oh no, like the magical time is over. I anticipate it so much that I get depressed a week before Christmas because I know that it's almost (laughs) over. So then logically I'm like, when do I have a good time in this lineup (laughs) for 20 minutes on Christmas proper? (laughs) I feel that this is actually why magazine companies in general do things like they have calendars and anniversaries and everything yeah. else i think it's because we're always looking for something new to celebrate especially during the bleaker months of yes. the year and i think that that is why mm-hmm. it works the way it does yeah 100 percent. so um yeah black christmas was uh interesting um for those of you who don't know it um it was originally supposed to be titled the babysitter uh, but it, it ended up being changed to uh, Black Christmas kind of at the last minute. Um, and it's interesting to note that because in connection with John Carpenter's Halloween that came out years later, John Carpenter's, you know, as, as everybody pretty much knows by now, Carpenter more or less credits Black Christmas as being one of the bigger inspirations for his Halloween series. Um, he was going to call it the Babysitter Massacres originally, too. Um, 
it's kind of interesting how we never get to the babysitters here. Yeah, always, no, um, I mean, one thing well, it was it was originally it went through so many changes then because it was originally released as Silent Night, Evil Night, and then yes. after a you know after a brief release period that then changed it to Black Christmas, which was the working title for a while. But then they were worried people were going to think it was a black exploitation film, which fair because when I told my dad when he asked what I was watching this month that I was watching Black Christmas, he was like, "Oh, is it a black exploitation film?" And I'm like, "No." <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's actually that's that's definitely um, that was a concern. Um, I will say that it's probably one of the only films I've watched where I thought that the premise was really stupid when I read it ahead of time because mm-hmm. I normally wiki most of my stuff when before I before I jump into a before I jumped into it, and I'm not talking about what we watched, you know, when we rewatched it. I'm talking about when. The, you know, the first time I saw it, maybe, I'm going to say eight years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, the first time I, I, I had heard of it, I sat down, I wikied it. I thought, man, that's a really dumb idea. And then I remember watching it once, you know, and I think that the thing that really sells the film is the character of Billy and his weird ass phone calls. And I will say that I think that that is... Um, it's probably one of the only times where my gut feeling was completely wrong going into the movie, and afterwards I was like, "Wow, that was actually really disturbing." I'm glad I didn't. I don't. I'm glad I didn't watch it alone the first time. I'm yep. glad I didn't watch it alone the second time. Yep. If I'd been home alone and watched it, I, I'd be really creeped out. There was a film from the '70s called The Boogeyman, which actually had kind of like a similar sort of vibe, where if you were alone in the house or something watching something like this, this thing had a, a weird, weird vibe because nothing about about black christmas felt right like yeah. everything everything felt like you could die at any minute truly and yes I'm, and as you know as a lady in her 20s watching this yeah. late at night with all the lights off yes <laughs> like, yeah and the, the people stopping by to be like hi we're like you know hi we're like a search party can we come in and it's like no you can stay out there everyone's it's a like- fucking threat <laughs> everybody yeah everyone's a suspect uh-huh so yeah yeah so there was there was a lot of that um i do remember i i remember the first time watching it going oh my god the guy from enter the dragon is in it and then i went back and was like oh yeah that really was john saxon so um <laughs> i i think that it it had it was interesting for many reasons i mean it's interesting because you know uh Lois Lane was in it too. Um, I think it was the a very strange cast. Yeah. You know, watching watching them look back on it years later, talking about mm-hmm. it in interviews. That's that's definitely surreal. Um, overall, the the film has always made me think that um, that people kind of misinterpret uh, the character of quote unquote Billy. Because, you know, we, we know for a fact that Billy is not the, you know, boyfriend who deserves to be dumped. Um, and we'll get to him. You know, I mean, it, I mean I'm mean, i happy he dies at yeah. the end. I'm happy that, I'm really, really happy that. I'm only that sad that we didn't get to see it happen on screen, brutally yeah, and And painfully. that it didn't go slower. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually, the, that was the thing that made me sad. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. was where I was like, man, the holidays really are disappointing. 
Um, but I will also say that the the character of Billy is someone where we see their eye, we you know we know that they crawl up you know the trellis in the beginning of the film, mm-hmm. and they're more or less just kind of like hang out in the attic and listen until they're ready to come down and kill. And that, if that sounds stupid to you, I understand. It sounded stupid to me as well. It read as stupid you know um, years ago, but the phone calls that Billy makes to the people in in the house are absolutely terrifying. Yeah. And there's there's so much that's left unanswered that you kind of you don't get left with a sense of security or closure or resolution at all. And I think that that's what I love about this that I don't dig as much about Halloween. Yeah. And and I want to there's a very, there's a really good compare and contrast there because you see the thing is you know even though like they're crying was that the boogeyman at the end of Halloween that wasn't nearly as creepy as the idea that not only was the threat not addressed not only was the threat not even barely confronted but the the other thing is that there could have been more than one killer in this film mm-hmm. and i think that that's the first thing because there was a girl who was killed in the park yeah in the story. yeah absolutely like that does not track with the mo of billy at all <laughs> no right so we could have had more than one killer mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, it's highly possible we had more than one killer. I also feel that Billy was possessed. Mm-hmm. I don't. That was the other thing, and I and I did say that yeah, to you. Yeah. I think that Billy's possessed because when they, you know, they they the, when you know talking about how the film was done, they did explain that they used animal sound effects and three different voices. Yep. You know, they had one person. They had the actor who played Billy stand on his head to to make the film. Yes. Pass, right. Yes. So. We're sitting there, and there are copious amounts of what the fuck in this process. Um, you know, in, in that sense, Bob Clark was just a genius. Mm-hmm. You know, that it was ingenious what he did. Uh, I don't think that they realized that they had more gold that they could mine yeah. later on. I think that that's that's just it. Um, there are, you know, I do feel that it, you know, as as one of the first steps in the Christmas horror genre. You know, it was it was a big deal, certainly a big deal in terms of Canadian horror. It was these were big first steps that were being taken. Um, but I, I do think that the possession angle for Billy is something where I'd I definitely like to see some sort of a remake where the killer is possessed and it's hopping from person to person. I think that that is, you know, you know, the idea that the killer truly is intangible uh, in the bit of, um, you know, in the vein of Fallen. Yeah, I mean, you know, and we talked about it, like, like, possession in many ways is, I think, the only way that it makes sense, like, especially mm-hmm. the audio recordings, just, mm-hmm. like, there is no way that one human voice could make those sounds, so unless he's going off-site to do pre-produced audio recording, bringing in guest actors and a pig and all of this, like, there's no way any of that shit makes sense unless there's something supernatural happening. It's like, it's like, I mean, on the other hand, this could also be an amazing comedy. Could you imagine a a serial killer who goes to farms, kills people there, (laughs) takes their sound effects, And it's literally just for the drama of his normal (laughs) rate of things, like, He's like, no, 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 Probably I don't attach these ones to my script. name. Yeah. <laughs> you know, puts a knife to somebody's throat and is like, listen, read this or I'll fucking kill you. And then it's like, they read him and kill him anyway. And then they go to the sorority house. That is uh, the motive. Fantastic. The motive is amazing, too. Yes. It's just like, we have no motive whatsoever. Uh, 
I'm kind of reminded of 2009's The Strangers, where um, <clears throat> the you know the, the 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 victims at the end go are like, "Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this?" And and the girl was like, "You were home. Yeah. <laughs> You're just like." <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a good enough reason for me. Yeah, yeah, man. yeah. I'm imagining like detectives trying to solve two entirely different <coughs> strings of murders, like one with an intense like serial killer stamp, like very clear mo, like super clear, like probably dropping off letters like he's the Zodiac killer, like all of the above, and then just another like podunk small town town detective being like. Well, my God, another person's been murdered on the farm, and the only thing we have to go on are these conspicuous marks from what looks like a microphone stand here. It's the eighth one this month, and I just don't know why. <laughs> it, it proves the existence of aliens, sir. Proves the existence of aliens. But yeah. Um, yes. It would be the best be- the, the best episode of X-Files ever. Um, but yeah, I think that... And, and I mean, hopping ahead about it here when we're talking about Silent Night, Deadly Night. Um, you know, the other thing that I've kind of something I, I don't feel enough people talk about is that, you know, there's there's these two films share a Billy, I feel. Yeah. And I and I and I, there, I do, you know, I'm completely acknowledging I bet you that neither not 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 a single person in either crew ever met one another or yeah, I'm willing to bet that they have nothing to do with one another whatsoever. But um, I do find it interesting that in 1974, right, mm-hmm. we have, um, yeah, in 1974, we have a Billy who's hiding up in an attic. And then in 1984, we have a, uh, a grandpa uh, where there's a little kid named Billy. And usually sons are named after their grandfathers, right? That's a possible mm-hmm. tradition, um, and especially in old school families. And you know we have a we have a grandpa who is uh, quite clearly not well uh-huh. scares the shit out of out of his kid and then later on he scares the shit out of his grandkid right, with incredible baggage on, about christmas <laughs> with incredible baggage about christmas and then goes on to and and you know what that would totally track it's like hey it doesn't sound anything like the original caller it's like well okay but you know the original caller didn't sound like the yep. original caller either so you know, the, you could totally be switching voices and it would totally make sense if the old man was pretending to be catatonic the whole freaking time, you know, and had a possessed spirit parked inside him and then decide to scare the shit out of this kid. So I think that there's, you know, one could even, you know, for those of you who are, you know, who like to write longer stories, I think you could totally take the events of Black Knight, the events of Silent Night, Deadly Night. And I think you got a very interesting franchise there. I think you got a, you know, a Christmas hating demon. Yeah. Uh, although... I've yet to meet a Christmas loving demon either. So <laughs> that's Elf on the Shelf. So, that's Elf on the uh, Shelf. <laughs> and Krampus. Krampus yeah, all it. of the above. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so funny. Like the ambiguity of the ending of Black Christmas is to me like for some reason when I watched this movie I was just like okay yeah like it's fine like it's weird it's kind of campy but it felt like a product of the time for me but looking back at the reviews for this movie people at the time did not appreciate it at all because it contributed to perhaps my favorite and most brutal most brutal review of the movie Uh, A.H. Weiler of the New York Times called it quote a whodunit that raises the question as to why it was made (laughs) oh yeah which you know unfortunate and then even the favorable reviews were still 
not really that favorable. Yeah, Kevin Thomas of the LA Times wrote, before it maddeningly overreaches in a gratuitously evasive ending, Black Christmas, opening today at selected theaters, is a smart, stylish, Canadian-made little horror picture that is completely diverting. It may well be that its makers could simply couldn't figure out how to end it. <laughs> oh no, like that's the good I mean... review? <laughs> Right. I mean, to be fair, again, go back to Friday the 13th and, you know, look up who wrote the ending for that or who suggested the ending for that. And then, you know, it's it's not like these movies uh, always, I mean, and yeah, it's not like that doesn't happen in the film industry all the sure, time. Sure, and I mean... There's a proposed ending and then there's an alternative Yeah, ending. well, this one, the alternative ending, the production company kept pushing, the, pushing Clark to give it a definitive ending. They wanted yeah. Claire's boyfriend, Chris, to show up and be like, oh, it was me all along at the right. end, which makes no fucking sense. And Clark no. basically went, thank you so much for your interest, but absolutely fucking not. And <laughs> kept it just as ambiguous as he wanted. And, you know, it like, was... good, for sticking, good for him for sticking to his guns, like, Yes. And the resulting animal still is scary. I mean, yes. when I every time it's it's still something you watch it and you're going, wow, that's that's actually creepy. That's right. That's I'm. It's creepy for different. It's creepy, creepier. You know, the thing is, when it comes to The Shining, you know, it's it's scary to watch by yourself, and but it's it's kind of got a similar thing because your willing suspension of disbelief is such that. You don't really need to work on it too much. And you nailed it perfectly. People really aren't around for the holidays. A lot of mm-hmm. times people just leave their homes, they drive away. There can be times when there's an emergency and that can happen in real life almost every day. Like during the holidays, people are leaving. I have family members who left right now to go somewhere else in Germany. Yep. Um, you know, it's 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 actually, you know, it's dark out. <laughs> it's cold. Uh, it's you know there's a lot of different ways where you know even in an everyday practical sense there's a there's a clear and present danger you go outside you get hurt throwing out the garbage and if you're or you could be locked out of your house you know hypothermia isn't a fun thing neither is frostbite yeah so yeah. there's we've there's got a stories of, you know, <laughs> a lot of pro- a lot of possible problems and the further out you live well, you know you're it's it's not much of a surprise but the thing that kind of nails it just right with suburbia is that you know if you're living by a park right um you can you know you have just enough wide open space and just enough of an illusion of of houses and it doesn't really feel like you're surrounded by houses anymore it feels like you're surrounded by a bunch of either empty buildings stall houses it's not very comforting no it's worse you know that howling wind is is really on point you're just wow i am completely fucking alone Mm -hmm. and i think that that's also why um the concept of billy and isn't the only terrifying thing here the the concept that there could be more than one happy fun-seeking individual roaming the landscape is is very disconcerting yeah yeah and also like the other thing too is as even though i am somebody who is typically very frustrated by an ambiguous ending i'm somebody who likes answers and everything there is no one character I could look at in this movie that could have been re- like revealed to be the killer all along that that would have been scary to me. Like there's there is no. no good answer. It's not like you could have picked any of the guys from in the script and been like, "Oh, you know, it's it's Chris, the boyfriend. It's even the police officer." I would have been like, "Okay, that's weird. Why did you do that?" <laughs> I would have the, the police officer. I would have bought like yeah. someone like John Saxon. John Saxon always had this intense look. That's on like him. the I've most creative ending I could imagine, like passing. Correct. And even then, I'm still like, eh. <laughs> 
but not the scariest. Yes, exactly. And that's just it. Yeah, no, it's much right. scarier having it be this figure from the outside that right. gets to, you know, sort of escape at the end. And it's odd because we live in an era of found footage films where we've done this a lot, right? Even from from, you know, from Blair Witch where we're not, you know, we don't really like not having a payoff. Yeah. And that's kind of what what really nails this home. Um this is one of the few times where you're only getting glimpses of something. It's incredibly low budget. It is absolutely terrifying. Yeah. I cannot say the same of, of found footage films. I, I just can't. Yeah. Like, Paranormal Activity might be the one time where we have the minimum of effects, we have a low budget, and we have an amazing payoff because of the story. Here, it's the circumstances. Mm-hmm. Because, and, and the thing is, it, 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 the, problem, the thing that makes me really sad is that there's a lot there that I still think could happen today. <laughs> the idea that police officers won't take somebody seriously, uh, won't take women seriously. Yeah. The idea, right, that the fact that the fucking sorority girls are basically on their own just pisses me off. The idea that there's, there's, you know, I could totally see that happening. No, and I, I've met a lot of moms who've told me, you know, when their when their daughters didn't like participate in like certain uh, parties or they didn't want to like play certain games, you know, they'd make the girls walk home alone or something. And so it's absolutely infuriating uh-huh. because you're looking at this going, yeah, these these cops are assholes for the most part. They're woefully understaffed. And on top of everything else, we've just got good old-fashioned sexism. And it's like, some people have said to me, oh, but you know, that was sexism in the 70s. I'm like... That's sexism now. That's sexism forever. Like, I really do think that the ambiguity of the ending, again, is scary because it feels true to life in many ways. Like, I was thinking about because this movie has a bunch of connections to true crime, which I can talk about. But, like, as somebody who consumes a, a decent amount of true crime content, like, there is... People always prefer the solved cases because you get the satisfaction of, like, an ending, of seeing the guy caught, whatever. But so many, like, really the majority of mysteries and true crime cases, so many go unsolved. Nobody likes to hear about them because it doesn't feel good, but that's the scary truth is that so many times the killer gets away and you just have to deal with the after effects of it and like that's the scarier reality to me yeah the other thing about that is that for me it's it's not just the fact that they got away right it's the fact that they're still out yes yeah right? exactly <laughs> like it's, yeah. there's it's like that's kind of the punchline for me mm-hmm. you know um and the other thing is just to back up what you just said um I, I did a little um, work with the with the Department of Investigation in New York City many years ago, and you know one of the you know one of the first things they told me was yeah we don't measure efficiency in cases solved yeah. we measure efficiency in cases closed and it's like oh uh-huh. <laughs> you know it's like oh and then you're sitting there and after a minute you go that's not very efficient yep <laughs> yeah that's that's actually terrifyingly inefficient. Yeah, so. yeah, and then, so, like, the true crime connections, because it's really weird, because it happens up front and in post-production. So, Black Christmas was originally developed um, by a Canadian screenwriter named Roy Moore, who was writing it called Stop Me, which, clearly, the script changed a lot, because... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he 
among other inspirations, one of the things he credited was as, you know, a source of his inspiration for writing was a series of murders that occurred in Montreal um, during the holiday season that was a 14-year-old boy who bludgeoned several of his family members to death, which is a real story that, that happened in Canada and was a big thing. And so that clearly did not really make it into the... Uh, <laughs> The, no. uh, the final script, but like that was part of the inspiration. And then when you go to the release of the movie, after its theatrical release, it was supposed to make its network premiere. Again, they changed the title and called it Stranger in the House this time because this movie needed another <laughs> freaking name. But... <laughs> like, how many titles? <laughs> right. But so they were supposed to release it um, on Saturday, January 28th of 1978 on NBC's weekly Saturday Night at the Movies. But two weeks before it premiered, um, there was a, a set of murders um, at the Chi Omega Sorority House at Florida State University. It was a double murder um, with two women, sorry, two women bludgeoned to death and then two other women attacked who survived and it, they later figured out it was Ted Bundy. And so because of that, they canceled the, the you know, the, the premiere of it because, you know, obvious sensitivity reasons. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you do not want to watch this movie after real life sorority cases. But it's bizarre given like just all the tie-ins with it is fascinating weird stuff mm -hmm. yeah and it's absolutely terrifying yes yeah yeah so those i mean yeah so in terms of black christmas i i will just i will just say that i mean if you if you want to talk about the anthropological conversations <laughs> too about it i will say the very first episode of the faculty of horror um you know with uh, andrew subasati and alexandra west I highly recommend, you know, listening to that as well. If you're fascinated about, you know, more of the, you know, more depth on the film in terms mm -hmm. of its, um, you know, some of its other woes, I think that yeah. Alex and Andrea wonderfully plumb that. But mm -hmm. as far as the, as far as the fun of the film, I'll say that it's definitely something where I'll watch, I'll probably watch it again and again and again. Oh, I yeah. think it's, it's actually delightful. got a lot of rewatch value. Yeah, no, this, um, it's such a fun movie. Like the characters are so great. It's, it's something where those, the filmmakers really were like, were intentionally like, you know, college students in every movie end up being these stereotype characters, but they're nuanced people. They're smart. They're savvy. They're full of personality. Like, Let's make them real people. And that's why you love them. Like, yeah. I was sad when Barb died. <laughs> yeah, I mean, actually, that's just it. I was, that's part of it, too. The other thing is also that the, um, the, 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 the boyfriend is, is kind of the oh. one that I, I really is. Yeah, that, that's actually what made it feel the most real for me uh -huh. was that there was this asshole who, uh, you know, was basically telling his girlfriend whether or not she could have an abortion, and right. you're just sitting there the whole time. And yeah, you're just telling like... her that she was going to get married to him. Like, what a fucking right. asshole. Yeah, if you if you didn't <laughs> if you didn't listen to the watch along with us, you missed my visceral anger for both this asshole boyfriend and the police. Like, I was just seething the entire time. <laughs> And that's just it. The thing is, I want to say that if you're going to watch this, if you're having relationship issues at the time, this this may be the make it or break it film. Like, in case you're figuring out whether or not you want to stay together. Yeah. This is totally that movie. Like, if you want to have a fight with your other and you just haven't figured out, 
you know, mm-hmm. I'm not here to anthro- offer anthropological mm-hmm. advice, but let me, you know, this is a great way to have a fight. <laughs> like, if yeah. you want to, if you want to get into a fight with your boyfriend, girlfriend, what have you, you know, whichever you prefer, just sit down and watch it, watch this, and 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 just see if everybody in the room's opinions stay the same. Yeah, this is going to be a great whether or not we should stay together film. Yeah, this <laughs> is a good like, one. Yeah, it, <clears throat> yeah, it's funny. Like, I don't know if you know the comedian Daniel Sloss. He's mm-hmm. yeah. So he he released a Netflix comedy special um, a couple years ago called Jigsaw that has yeah. was such an indictment of the way that many relationships work that it's been credited with breaking up at least 34,000 relationships and 93 <laughs> marriages, a fact which he is very proud of. So, you know, if you're feeling like the stress lines on a relationship, like watch this one first. If you really want to break up, then just go right. watch the Daniel Sloss special. <laughs> right. Like maybe a double it's... feature if you're really just trying to torpedo this thing. <laughs> yeah, and I want to apologize to everybody in advance. We probably should have shown this during the lockdown, you know, like during last <laughs> December. It would have probably been more useful. Uh-huh. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty, guys. We're, we're sorry. <laughs> oh, God. Um, yeah. But, you know. Yeah. I mean, the other thing about this one, too, the production facts about this movie are bananas. <laughs> like, I thought that this was a pretty straightforward movie. As soon as I started reading about, like, what happened behind the scenes, like, as with a lot of small budget movies, I was like, what yeah. the fuck? So just, like, you know, a few of my favorite facts. So I already mentioned in the watch long that Olivia Husey, Jess, she took the role because her psychic thought it would be a good career move. Now, Margot Kidder, who played Barb, she said that she got real tight with Andrea Martin, who played Phil, but, quote, Olivia Husey was a bit of an odd one. She was obsessed with the idea of falling in love with Paul McCartney through her psychic. We were a little hard on her for things like that. What does that mean? Like, I honestly right. don't know. I wish I did. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of like wondering, did you guys have your own, like, folk, fake sorority hazing ritual on her for I wanting to love Paul McCartney? Know. And why the fuck wasn't the camera rolling for this? Also, like, how was her psychic, to like, watch that. was her psychic validating this? Was her psychic giving her tips, being like, Paul McCartney doesn't know who you are, but he loves you? Like, what... What right. was the involvement of I mean, the psychic in her obsession not, with Paul McCartney? See, that's just it. It's not entirely untrue because the Beatles love everyone. <laughs> so she's not really wow. lying. So true. So true. Yeah. yeah. And then speaking. All you need is love. All you kids. need is love. And Billy. Oh, God. And Billy. Yeah. And so speaking of Margot Kidder, she insisted on drinking real alcohol for all of her drinking scenes, which <laughs> yeah. were most of them. So either her alcohol tolerance is off the fucking charts or she was it wasted is. for half of filming. Probably both. <laughs> Probably both. But yeah, I love I love the scene where and you see these are the things like the things that I love are also the things that I do not condone about oh, parts of this film. Like where she's not. like giving a kid snaps. Yeah. And it's like, here, try a little more. And it's just like, ah. Yeah, no, this is eight thousand things you should not do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We here at Lawrence and Lawrence do not endorse this type of behavior, uh-huh. but also there's part of me there's parts of me where I'm like, man, I really like this character. Yeah. She's so... No, you love Barb. Like, you don't want Barb around yeah. your children, but you love Barb. No, you just know that Barb, yeah, Barb cannot be the babysitter. No. Barb can be so many other things, no. but Barb cannot be the babysitter. Yeah, 
no, no babysitting, no good advice. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so then Lynn Griffin, who played Claire Harrison, the first to die, who spent the rest of the movie showing shots of her corpse just chilling in the attic with a bag over her head, she genuinely had to spend a lot of goddamn time with a plastic bag on her head. And that is an alarming experience at the best of times. But she was remarkably chill about the whole thing. She said, and I quote, I was actually, and still am, a fairly good swimmer, so I could hold my breath for a long time. And I could keep my eyes open for a long time without blinking. Like, okay, badass. Like, she's like, oh, I'm just exceptionally well-suited to playing a corpse. And I'm like, good for you, babe. (laughs) Good for you. Know your strong suits. And she did. (laughs) I have no comments. Uh-huh. Nothing I say is going to... No. Not a damn thing I have nope. now. Uh-uh. <clears throat> yep. Then the one scene of Billy... These Cla- are also fetish hashtags on, on FetLife. You no, know, 100%. Like, like... 100%. <laughs> I mean, everything that Billy does is. <laughs> that too, yes. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. Yep. Speaking, yeah, yeah, speaking of Billy, the one scene of Billy climbing up the trellis uh, on the outside of the house, they used a whole custom-built rig that was designed and worn by camera operator Burt Dunk while he scaled the building, wearing this on his head like the massive yeah. 1973 equivalent of a GoPro. <laughs> 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 I cannot imagine the neck pain, but props to you, Bert. <laughs> Then the sound production, like we already touched a little bit on Mancuso's (laughs) recording. I'm going to talk about it again because I'm just going to read this direct paragraph quote from the Wikipedia page because everything about it is a fever dream and I cannot capture it in the way that they did. So the composer of the film score, Carl Zitterer, stated in an interview that he created the film's mysterious music by tying forks, combs, and knives onto the strings of the piano to warp the sound of the keys. Zitterer also stated that he would distort the sound further by recording its sound onto an audio tape and making the sound slower. The audio for the, re- for the disturbing phone calls was performed by multiple actors, including Mancuso, that's Nick Mancuso, who was responsible for most of the phone voices, and director Bob Clark. Mancuso stated in an interview that he stood on his head during the recording sessions to compress his thorax and make his voice sound more demented. Mancuso spent only three days recording dialogue for the character, later recalling the experience being a very avant-garde one, with Clark encouraging him to improvise with the character's voice. Can you imagine... Spending three days just in a sound booth, standing on your head, being told to improvise the most demented shit imaginable. And then you just, like, go back to your normal life after that. Like, where's the aftercare Man. for that experience? I'm sure Carrot Top does animated specials. It's just, <laughs> you know, I'm sure it could happen. It's just, I mean, I think there's that. I think the, the one thing is, and I'm because I'm going to forget about this if I don't mention it now, <laughs> is that... um. I think it's for those of you who enjoyed the soundtrack to this Akira Yamaoka's um, Silent Hill 1 soundtrack has has points where it's very similar Um, I don't think I've ever heard anything quite like Akira Yamaoka's Silent Hill soundtrack and after watching Black Christmas I am I I still I went I tried going down the rabbit hole I haven't found any real answers yet but I've I've actually wondered if Akira Yamaoka was inspired in some way shape or form by the the soundtrack composer for black christmas Mm -hmm. because i definitely feel that there's some similarities um 
it, that's kind of the weird thing when you're looking at the PlayStation One, you're looking at everything that went into Silent Hill. It was just like, man, there's there's so many different ways to read that video game. Um, but I really feel like the music is almost one to one in some places. Um, and yeah, this could just be me. I think it's almost one to one with certain parts of Black Christmas. Um, there's it's just weird and creepy. It's also quite brilliant, but. Um, you know, we have we have tons of other people out there like Tom and Andy um, who, you know, put out music that where it's less melodic, it's less organized, it's less harmonic. Um, but it doesn't come any where close to what we have with Black Christmas. And, I, you know, the soundtrack is definitely is a keeper. You know? Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah this... And, you know, Zitra put in the work, so I'm glad like, yeah. it panned out. Yeah, it, mm, the thing small crews Speaking do. Speaking of weird soundtracks, <laughs> yeah! Silent Night Deadlight, Silent Night Deadly Night soundtrack was also uh, <laughs> a bit interesting, right? <laughs> it's not like right, like I watched it. How much more synth then can I, you take? And I recorded some music, and then I re-recorded some music over that music, mm-hmm. and then I layered some other music. I was like, so you basically made a musical Onion? Yes. yes. Yeah, it's to a combination. Yeah, a combination of just endless synth and the most um violent to your ears original christmas music i've ever heard like i still have like the santa's watching santa's waiting like running through my head on loop and i wish i could get it to leave it's a horrifying earworm that's in there and tortures me Yeah. Like I love Christmas music, and th- the I will give them credit for fully capturing um, the catchiness of Christmas music while also making yeah. it awful. <laughs> yeah, which was the goal. They, like this, they, I'm they not knocking it. it. I will say I found they they actually just you know, in the last couple of days they launched the uh, Fright Rags uh, launched the Kickstarter for the Silent Night Deadly Night board game. <laughs> I don't really know if it was the best choice to use that music as like advertising, yep. but whatever. I guess it worked uh, because they raised the money already. But it's just like that was the weirdest choice ever for advertising. That's like just let's just pick pick the earworm. Like it's a small world after all to sell Disney board games. <laughs> I don't that. know if I do that. Like it's one hundred percent. It's a small world. Totally correct. <laughs> yes, and it's 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 weird. And you know when it comes to selling out Deadly Night, you know. For, so for those of you who have not watched it, the story is that there is a young boy named Billy. He's having a great Christmas with his family, who are driving to a sanitarium to visit their grand, uh, you know, the grandfather. Um, and Billy's grandfather, you know, on his father's side, we have no idea how batshit crazy they are on his mother's side. Mm-hmm. Uh, Billy's father, grandfather, is uh, is catatonic. He's basically sitting there. We don't really get an exact description of what his malady is, no. but he's just not speaking, or at least everybody thinks he can't speak. And then. Uh, the family does the thing that you always do with a child. They left him alone in the room with somebody who can't move or speak. Yeah, just hang out and with your catatonic grandpa. Like an evil elf on the shelf, grandpa springs to life yep. and, and uh, basically tells Billy that Christmas is, is actually a terrifying, scary holiday. And that if you see Santa, uh, you should run like hell, uh, especially if you've been naughty. And that, uh, you know... Santa punishes little boys and girls, so I guess, uh, you know, he might have, you know, been raised in Austria or something. Um, It was interesting. Afterwards, Billy was rightfully shaken, went off, tried to tell his parents that Grandpa spoke. Of course, that didn't work, because it never does. 
uh, parents kept driving back, and then they came to a Santa in the middle of the road. Uh, and, uh, you know, Santa pretended to have car trouble. Uh, instead, he shot Dad in the head um, and uh, tried to rape Mom. And uh, Mom fought back, and then he cut her throat open. And Billy kind of stood by and hid in the bushes while, uh, you know, his baby brother cried in the car. Good times um, for all. Yeah. Good time. Yeah, really a memorable Christmas holiday. And then uh, we fast forward a bit to the to where Billy and his little brother are in an orphanage, a Catholic orphanage. Let me, let me be very clear, <laughs> a Catholic orphanage. <clears throat> and um, you know, because this shit, this film got a lot of shit for being anti-Catholic. And let me just say, as somebody came has a Catholic upbringing who spent nine years in a Catholic penitentiary, I can I can definitely attest that. Um, there are nuns like, uh, you know, Mother Superior. There are also nuns like, you know, uh, Sister Margaret. Uh, but they are, you know, that's that's always it. There's, uh, you've got some really good nuns, and then you've got some nuns who just should not be nuns. Yep, the duality and, and of it's none. Kind of, it's yeah, the dichotomy of good nun and bad nun. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, in this case, bad nun won out. Uh-huh. And, you know, and by abusing Billy over the years to get him to enjoy Christmas and, you know, sort of blindly accepts the things that she that she says and labels as sins as sins. Billy doesn't exactly have the best education, which is very indicative of a Catholic upbringing. It's it's like, you know, and I can speak from experience, it's not about talking about the problem, it's uh-huh. just about kind of glazing over it. And it's you know pathological it's kind depression. Of hash- Hashtag bad. Hashtag original sin. There's really a lot of exploration or expounding or anything. There's a whole lot of... There's more conversation about whether the conversation is even appropriate, whether rather than actually getting to, you know, actually examining the problem. Right. And Billy is a direct result of that. He becomes a gigantic, you know, really well-built guy. Yes, um, I used the word beefcake several times. Beefcake, yes. And he... Uh, you know, he goes to work in a toy shop where he meets uh, somebody who was not raised Catholic and was a complete douchebag and, uh, you know, sort of trying to abuse his Billy's trust and makes him, you know, work harder than he has to. And then that same nice gentleman tries to uh, basically rape uh, a co-worker. And at this point, uh, Billy's wearing a Santa costume and Billy's brain kind of goes into overload because... Billy doesn't know what to, you know, Billy was beaten for seeing sex, doesn't really know what to think about that. Billy doesn't really have, yeah, Billy doesn't have a wide range of parameters. He's kind of got naughty or good. And so... And his standards for good are very high. (laughs) Yes. His standards for good are very abstract, actually. He doesn't really understand either because he's just learned, he's been... He's been being brainwashed and programmed sure. by a Catholic nun for, you know, 10 years or so. Um, so the re- end result of that is that he overloads and goes on a killing spree. Um, you know, he almost becomes a hero. You know, he almost just kills a rapist and then saves a woman. Uh, and then he kills the woman. Uh, because it's like, it's like, you let him put his penis in you. Bad woman. Axe. And you're like, um, Billy? This did not go the way we wanted at yeah. all. And I remember sitting there the first time going, yeah, no, that's the Catholic Church. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, 
No. Yep. Can, you was like, I, I, let's punish some more victims. I went to a Catholic elementary school in New York. I would be more than happy to go in front of my auditorium, sit there with all the nuns and the faculty. I'd be more than happy to have like they could have twenty people and the parents all around me. I'd be more than happy to very slowly explain to them why this whole film tracks. But instead, what happened was an entire you see the. An entire parents association was so pissed off with this that they did everything they could and they succeeded in like Mm -hmm. having this thing have like a limited two week run. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying, you know, Siskel and Ebert got up online. Everybody got just shit on this. Yeah, but Siskel and Ebert being like, you should be ashamed of what you've done here. Like, shut the fuck up to the two of them. It's really (laughs) annoying, especially like the thing that a lot of people point to is that. Everybody was astonished that it was a Santa slasher, but it was not the first movie to do that at all. Like, I mean, Tales from the Crypt and Christmas Evil had both done the exact same thing already. Exactly. And, but right. the problem was really the commercial that came out rather than the movie yes. itself. So for those who don't know, there was a commercial that ran, which very accurately portrayed the the movie as, you know, Santa being a brutal killer and you should be afraid of him. It was a pretty gory commercial. The problem was that somehow, through some debacle of advertising, they ran it through primetime television for like a full week, including in the middle of like a Saturday sports game. So this meant it says that, a lot more about what I'm sorry. Yeah. It says a lot more about the programmers' uh-huh. standards than it does about the people trying to exactly. advertise their film. So because of this, all of these parents are scandalized that now their tender, sweet little children are terrified of Santa. Then they begin this anti-campaign against the <laughs> against the movie, saying it's shocking and a degradation of moral values. And also, again, just I have to mention, the it becomes tied up in the whole, like, moral superiority of, like, Christmas as a Christian holiday. And I'm like, you know mm-hmm. that it's just, a, it's a fictionalized ripoff of pagan rituals, right? But that's yeah. another conversation to have. <laughs> oh, no, we could have that conversation now. For those of you who don't know... <laughs> Everything in your fucking Christmas is fucking pagan. Yeah. We even believe that Jesus was probably born in September. Yep. Like, just just to be clear, not a single fucking thing. I mean, it kind of reminds me of, there's, there's a scene in True Blood where, you know, this guy says, I don't want a gay man serving me a burger because I don't want the, you know, I don't want, I don't want the burger to have AIDS. And he goes, oh, sweetheart, it's too late for that. Gay people have been breeding your cattle and brewing your beer long before I walked my sexy ass up to your table. <laughs> it's like everything on your goddamn table has AIDS. Uh-huh. It's the same kind of thing. Yeah. You know, we're kind of looking at this and it's like, no, there's not a single thing. Not yeah. a single thing no, in Christianity everything, doesn't have a pagan element. Yeah, everything about Christmas is either pagan or a capitalist construct, which leads yes. nicely to... Probably the biggest reason that this movie actually got pulled. Um, so, mm-hmm. because most most horror movies thrive on controversy, they love like a little controversy drummed up for this. But one of the behind the scenes rumors for why it ultimately got pulled from theaters after two weeks is that TriStar Pictures, the distributors of the movie, were also owned by the same company as the people who owned Coca Cola, who love using Santa as their happy yeah. family marketing mouthpiece. So. Right. Like, not really in the company's interest when you have a cash cow like Coca-Cola to essentially 
accidentally run an anti-Santa campaign in December. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and again, just to go back here for a second, mm-hmm. Santa based upon Odin. That's uh, yep. Santa is based upon two people, Nicholas of Mira and Odin. Uh, so Santa should be missing an eye. He's not historically yeah. accurate. So yeah, and it would be cooler to have a Santa missing an eye, right? Please like give me eye patch Santa. Eye patch Santa, like, kick ass eye patch Santa. <laughs> I just hope it has a better story than like fucking you know Mar- the MCU's version of Nick Fury losing his eye. It's so fucking anticlimactic. Is it? What's like? What took out your eye? A kitty. It's like great. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. And it's a bummer that the whole thing got pulled because it did really well on the one full weekend it had, especially given that it opened the same weekend as Nightmare on Elm Street and outgrossed it by about $161,000, which to be fair, it's like it was probably because it was playing in twice as many theaters as Nightmare on Elm Street was, but you know, it, it didn't really make it to a full second weekend before it got pulled. And it did eventually make it back. The producer, Ira Barmack, had to fight to buy the rights to the movie back so they could distribute it with a new company. And so Aquarius Film Releasing um, ultimately released Which it again. Which was a nightmare in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. Also, they mysteriously released nightmare. it in May of 1985, which seems like extremely weird timing, but okay. And so it had a mediocre run then because it was a Christmas movie in May. But it finally found its footing when it was released on video in 1986, became, you know, pretty much a cult classic, spawned four sequels within five years, plus the reportedly mediocre 2012 sort of remake. Like, so it franchised itself immediately as soon as it got a two video release. Yep. And, uh, I don't know. I will say that. The killing spree was, you know, the, the work up to the whole film was, was good. Mm-hmm. Killing Father O'Malley was also good. The killing spree was a little anticlimactic for me. And, you know, it's a little weird. As, as someone who's watched a lot of slashers, yeah. um, I just want to say, fans, um, I'm not a huge fan of slashers. Like, I love violence. And I... <laughs> It's just, and I, and I love, and I love naked bodies. And for some reason, I don't know, we put them together and I'm, but for, I'm just not a huge fan of slashers. I, I think that they kind of need to, there needs to be a little bit more than, than nudity and, and slashing for me to be engaged. Shocking that you have content standards and actually want, you know, nuanced subject material. It's been, you know, I mean it's kind of weird like maybe maybe i'm spoiled because i feel like that there are a lot of horror fans who really are happy with halloween and friday the 13th Mm -hmm. and nightmare on elm street and i understand that it's just that i think that when we're gonna have somebody in a santa suit go on a killing spree i just thought there would be more uh, creativity in terms of the kills. I, I, I mean, I, I, I guess getting impaled on deer horns is okay, and I guess <laughs> beheading someone on a sleigh is okay. I just feel like there would have been, you know, especially if you were this again, a beefcake. You would have more of, uh, you know, you'd be, you know, breaking into police stations, killing cops, but you know, as many as you can, and and you know, just doing things that are just wildly out of this world in terms of violence. 
Um, we don't really see that. In fact, I, I feel that a lot of the Santas I've seen, except for, and I can't believe I'm saying this, except for Bill Goldberg in Santa Slay. And you know, for those who don't know him, Bill Goldberg is a former NFL uh, player, also a, um, even Bill Goldberg in Santa Slay was was really it was a was a much better killer you know much more innovative and even that was uh, that was a hammy version that was not a uh something that you could take seriously and i think that's kind of it like when we look at films like i don't know jack frost or um oh it's another one jack frost santa slay there's so many bad christmas you know comedy horrors Mm -hmm. And, and and that's just it it felt like after Tim Allen's The Santa Claus, everybody was still trying to get in on the the Christmas horror train, but they weren't taking it as seriously. And I thought that there, I still think that there's a lot of potential in, you know, uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night's Billy, because this idea that he's just embodied with, you know, great strength and ends up, you know, because of his limited way of seeing things. Uh, going on a killing spree, I think that that killing spree should have been a little bit more creative. I think like the yeah. Midnight Mass would have been a good place. Um, like what about people who fall asleep during Midnight Mass or kids who fall asleep during Midnight Mass, right? Mm-hmm. Like there were a lot of different ways. Yeah, um, and especially given the character that created for him of being this emotionally stunted adult that was essentially mm-hmm. somebody who never got to have a real joyful childhood. Like right. the if there was more thought into, you know, committing these murders in, like, a childlike way, like, with that sensibility, like, he right. seemed to have that no-nuance sense of, like, morality of, like, well, are you good or are you naughty? <laughs> but if that was extended more into his methods and into the creativity that he used, I think that could make a much more interesting killing spree. I mean, I think there could have also been other interesting things layered into it, maybe quoting Bible passages as like, you know, kind of like quoting the law that you Oh, yeah, so they could have gotten accused of being more anti-Catholic back in 1984. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, you see, that's just it. It's really nailing the the hammer home was kind of the point. Yeah, Um, I totally agree. I just think they would have gotten flamed for it, but I I wish it was You're going to get flamed for I mean, in this industry, you're going to get flamed for something sooner or later. Anyway, it's like... I think that the big thing that just kind of distinguishes today from yesterday is now there are times when you deserve to get flamed for it. Like mm-hmm. Jeepers Creepers 3, right? Uh, you know, the idea of having Victor Salva, somebody who was a you know, consict- uh, convicted sex offender, um, you know, working on a set with children. Yep. You know? Um, those are times yeah. where I'm like, yeah, Irredeemable. No, flame that film. You know? Yeah. So I think that, you know, there are times where you can't, you know, where I think that, you know, everybody gets flamed. I think it's the reason for which you get flamed yeah, that of kind course. of sets you apart from everyone else. Um, you know, the other thing, I mean, the, the for me, the, the biggest disappointment with the film is that, you know, um, Mother Superior lives. And I think that that is <gasps> the, the what the fuck of the film. Like Deadpool I walks in, so handing his hands up mad. in the air and disbelief going, what in the actual fuck people? I mean, again, I think it's they were literally too scared to kill a nun on, uh, you know, in a, in a film. But like, <laughs> A, they shouldn't have been. B, like... You seriously made me sit through that whole fucking movie and don't let him kill his own abuser? Like, what the uh, hell? Actually, 
What I really think would have been more appropriate is if Sister Margaret killed Mother Superior oh, that would have been and a then joy. Billy stopped the killing. Yeah, I mean, I think that would have, that's, as somebody who was partially raised by nuns, I would definitely say that I think that there were more than enough nuns of good conscience mm-hmm. who would have stood up to that nun. And that's something I definitely believe I would yeah. have liked to have like, seen. Like, can you imagine one nun take the other one out? It would have been so good. Imagine a situation awesome. in which, like, Sister Margaret gets back, Billy barges into the, you know, into the orphanage, ready to slice and dice Mother Superior just to find Sister Margaret standing and over her, right, and she's and he's already to cut dead. The kids to get to her. Yeah, right. Yeah, and, and it's me, all, the job is already is, done. <laughs> I was just kind of hoping that they would have, like, kicked her out of a window in the chair. The chair would have rolled down a hill and into, like, a pit of, like, angry vipers or something. Uh-huh. With some, I don't Maybe, know, some sort of chimera you know, reindeer fire. that, like, fucking ripped her apart. You know? Yeah, I really, I think fire should have been involved so we get, you know, a nice pits of hell allegory. Like, because she's clearly going reindeer, there, man. despite all of her moral <laughs> superiority. Like, she... Yeah. <laughs> And I think that's just it. Like, usually, and I say this a lot, right? I'm not a huge fan of slashers. Mm-hmm. I do like what... I, I, I'm not the biggest fan. I do watch them. I think that what makes a good slasher versus a really shitty slasher is the kills themselves. Yep. And I think that that's actually just it. Like, the, the 2009 remake of Friday the 13th mm-hmm. is probably one of the best a- examples. There was a, you know, an actor who plays a complete douchebag who's, a, you know, again, it's just, again, another Mother Superior character. The, the death is just quick and it's it just, it doesn't work. And the, the audience, I remember the audience going, what the fuck? As they, like, they yelled at the screen and they were like, mm-hmm. you know, we took, we took, like, five minutes killing someone else we're not, and we kill this guy all at once? What the fuck kind of shit is that? And so I feel like it's the same sort of idea with um, with with Silent Night, Deadly Night. When we look at Mother Superior, this kill was this was the main kill. This was the money shot, as they say. And you know, <laughs> to quote porn star Evan Stone, you know, in the money shot, if the actress screws up this shot, she's done. If the if the actor screws up this shot, he's done. If the director screws up this shot, he's done. You know, this this is one of those things where you're like, you're looking at this this moment, and you're going, yeah, this is kind of like a big moment for the film. The abuser is supposed to get some sort of closure. Uh-huh. That doesn't happen. Yeah. All we get is little Ricky going naughty. Right. <laughs> you're like, Which like you're like, great. Okay, this this is an ending that is setting you up for a franchise, but it is not the ending that is satisfying at all for the audience. <laughs> I would have loved to have been a consultant on the film and just come up to 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 Celia Jr. and just been like, "Listen, this is a Catholic orphanage. I I assure you, sir. I know, I know. You know, just you know, cue the the sensitive piano music in the background. Listen, I know you want to do another movie and that you think that by not killing Mother Superior, you'll be setting up a um, you know, uh, another another installment in the franchise but ricky's gonna grow up in a catholic orphanage and i assure you there'll be plenty of reasons for him to kill by the time he's out of here so you know yeah. and he just saw his brother you know get shot by the police i'm sure yeah we can, i know so i mean honestly probably <clears throat> genuinely if they're setting up this i mean they are setting up the trajectory for the little brother to become the next killer they couldn't kill off mother superior because then who would fuck him up for the rest of his life <laughs> I'm sure they would. Are you kidding me? The next Monsignor or Nun or something I else know. will come in. That's actually exactly it. And that that was just it. I think that that was the other thing. 
See, everybody's like, oh, we couldn't kill her because we needed another installment in the franchise. I'm like, wow, these are really uncreative writers. <laughs> Clearly, you don't understand. The Catholic Church has a lot yeah, of people. Yeah, there, are, there okay. are plenty of snakes in the Catholic Church. Right. Yeah, it's, hey. it's not difficult to find another bad person. <laughs> right. Alter boys. <coughs> yeah, you know, just saying. Truly, truly. There were lots of places where we we had vantage points. Yeah, it's it's so bizarre because you have two <clears throat> movies that are could be accused of having unsatisfying endings in such different ways. Like people yes. complain about the ambiguity of the ending of Black Christmas, but I leave that being like, wow, that was a creepy movie. Silent Night, Deadly Night ends, and I'm mad. I'm mad because I'm A, not scared, B, did not get a satisfying conclusion, and I'm mad about it. <laughs> not everybody gets what they want for Christmas access. I know. I know. You know, and actually, speaking of, like, as we were talking about, like, the lack of conclusion in true crime cases, too, it was making me think about the fact that I was kind of surprised in retrospect that we never got any closure on the first killer Santa in the movie, the, yeah. the road stop killer Santa. And I mean, I know yeah. the whole thing is kind of about Billy having the cruelest possible start in life and the killer being caught does not line up with that. But yeah. you'd also think that if he was still out there slaying somewhere, we would get like at least a little sneaky peek of it. To be fair, I'm not really complaining because he was really fucking gross. But like, yeah. but the idea that, I mean, he's, in my mind, like, the real evil that's still out there, they're focusing on Billy and his rampage, and meanwhile there's this scumbag and sexual assaulter that's still just, like, roaming the streets as far as we know. That could have also been... And, and I'm sorry, just to, just to kind of like, there could have been yeah. a redemption arc for Billy as well. Yes. There could have been a moment where Billy kills that Yes. Santa. Would have been really cool. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, or even Billy and Ricky get older together yes. and then they go and kill Santa, right? And they bring lots of toys, you know, mm-hmm. in the form of torture implements, you know, and they're like wrapped in tinsel and whatnot. There's lots of fun ways one can actually take this and turn this into, you know, turn a frown upside down. But instead it just that's the problem uh, there's just the other thing is um, no offense no shade to the to the subgenre of slasher right. but for the most part it is very formulaic and people um are afraid to try new things yeah. and i feel that that is just that's something in horror that we need to improve and i'm mm-hmm. saying that as a writing instructor not as a you know not not just as a as a critic mm-hmm. um you know there are moments where you're just sitting there and people are like and then the killer dies. Not always. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, right? It's like, you know, there's people, people never, never really see that you can have, uh, you know, I mean, you could really mash mm-hmm. up Black Christmas and Silent Night, Deadly Night and have probably an amazing Christmas yeah, story, right? I mean, forever art has been about subverting, like subverting the expectations of archetypes. Like looking back at Shakespeare, he's pulling on archetypal characters from Commedia dell'arte, and the magic of his pieces come when a character does something you wouldn't expect, and then you're like, "Whoa, groundbreaking!" Or at least you were, and you know, but you know, hundreds of years ago, you were like, "Wow, this has yeah. never been done before." And even today, there's a reason we still like them. And so, like, there's nothing wrong with recognizing archetypes and you know capitalizing on the value of archetypes and stuff but finding ways to use them creatively benefits you as an artist (laughs) without question and it's kind of a necessary it's it's necessary to innovate yeah it just is it's necessary to innovate to survive and the thing is if 
if fans watch the same thing over and over and over again, they're just not going to pay for it anymore. Mm -hmm. So, and they barely pay for it now. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to, like, undersell it. Like, on the whole, like, there are fun parts to this movie. It's not like, you know, because we're bragging on it. But, yeah, like, there are... I wish... I wish. Yeah, you no, know. I was I was ragging on the church. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was directly. I, I I was okay with you know. I have I have no problems with Billy as a person. No. For you know, I have no problems with you know with Sister Margaret other than her complacency. Um, <clears throat> you yeah. know, I I do have some problems. You know, I have a lot of problems with Mother Superior. Yeah. But like you know, for the most part, it's not that the film didn't work because of of one little thing it's still it's still a good idea again it's just like black christmas it was a good first step yeah i mean i do think that i do hope a screenwriter sits down and blends them together um in american horror story we had a wonderful um bad santa played by ian mcshane and um you know there was you know there was a demon nun you know who lets out the santa and i definitely felt that this was definitely a nod to silent night deadly night and to black christmas i'll never forget that line she's like yeah you were a man who you know you were a poor man who who went to to get um who stole some bread to feed himself and they jailed you for it and five five jailers came caroling Right, and dressed in Santa suits. The first one, to, you know, the, they took your virginity. Well, the first one did. The other four took your dignity and your Christmas spirit. And you're just sitting there watching it going, wow, this nun did what two movies couldn't do. They totally got me to go, oh, what the fuck? Look yep. at the screen. So, there, you know, there's just things where I think that horror has become... Again, we are getting more... Some of us become more innovative as time passes on. It's just that um, these are these are great films to watch as, you know, kind of like getting the roots of Christmas horror in it. It's always, mm-hmm. it's always good to go back and look at those yeah. old traditions. So Yeah, and also special shout out to just my favorite character in the movie, Mr. Sims. Like... What a, what, a, what a little gem he was the whole time. Every time he was around, I'm like, I'm going to have a good time because Mr. Sims is here. Is he a dick sometimes? Yeah, sure. But, like, Mr. Sims is the Barb of this movie. Like, not as yeah. good as Barb, but, like, no. it, Mr. No. Sims is here to try his damnedest to have a good time, even though he's stuck in Christmas retail hell. And if that's not a relatable experience, I don't know what yeah. is. Oh, my God. And that, yeah. that's actually, I think, I think that, the holidays for retail people are are things that we don't talk about enough, especially on this show. Uh, yeah, like also in a pandemic. <laughs> Hol- like, I yeah. I did not love doing holiday retail, period. Yeah. Holiday retail in any major chain in a pandemic, right? Be- oh, my God. There is no surer path to hell on earth than being chained <laughs> to your desk working overtime for the eighth day in a row as everybody yeah, hates you as they try to do their last minute christmas shopping <laughs> i am actually surprised that there have not been more stories about portals to hell on earth opening during christmas holiday times mm-hmm. when people work because of how much negativity goes around yeah i mean, starting black friday Black Friday in and of itself now has become so commercialized and so violent. I'm surprised that there's not a Black uh, Black Friday horror movie. Genuinely. Um, again, 
Yeah, I would like to say that there are also, um, you know, people tried to rename it Big Friday at one point because there was also a, you know, people thought that it, it was racist at first to call it Black Friday. Um, but it was because black was associated with the color doom um, in terms of its, uh, you know, original etymology. But from, you know, Black Friday to Black Christmas, I don't think there's too much of a stretch. In fact, I think Black Friday, you know, um, would be even more terrifying in, in the in the sense of all the acceleration, adrenaline, uh, trying to get out of a place alive, being smothered against glass doors. I definitely think that this is something where sooner or later somebody's going to nail it. Endless potential. Um, Plus, like, I, I do think having just some kind of piece where retail workers get to turn the tables and just slash up the store of assholes would be a true piece of catharsis for me personally and i think a huge segment of the american workforce you know and right. international that workforce. person would become the mascot during the yeah. holidays like it should be like some sort of weird frank the bunny-esque character yep. people would just come to work wearing bunny ears and being like Fuck with me. I, I know, and you. genuinely, like, you can picture it as the mascot, like, slices through half the customer base and, like, looks over to the employees and they're all like, you do you, bud. Like, right. We're not going to stop you. Right. Yeah, I mean, how many times have other customers been there and they're like, no, that person was being an asshole. I'm sorry. You know, no one should have to go through that during the holidays. So I do think that, like, yeah, that you'd have a huge fan base if you developed a Black Friday horror mascot. Oh delightful one day if you're listening <laughs> yeah go ahead maybe pay us some rights like again right. think back to to you know our our boy what's his name uh, yeah paul Kami, who got uh, writing credits mm-hmm. for uh, for black christmas after use they used one sentence of his concept to create the movie right. that is the kind of credits we would like for this concept right. Right. <laughs> we would like In story by credits yeah too. story by <laughs> Axis and Moner, um, and we fully accept all royalties. <laughs> right. <laughs> Christmas bonus for us. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, so if you like these films, these are very specialized films. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that most of the stuff goes with Slasher. I think Slasher mixes well with Slasher. I think Holiday Slasher is also something where... It's also a it's a very niche market. I did mention some others like there is Jack Frost and there's Santa Slay. Personally, though, if I was gonna watch these again or if I was gonna watch these during a watch party, one thing I do like to do is uh, you know position the older movies with their remakes. Like so, sometimes I will do um, you know I do Black Christmas uh, 1974 and then Black Christmas 2006. You know or um, and then I would do Silent Night Deadly Night and that would do its remake. And I think. I think that's also really fun as a you know. I also think the compare and contrast is really valuable. Yeah, uh, there have been two remakes of Black Christmas so far. I have not seen the latter one yet. Actually, I am looking forward to that. Um, so, but I would definitely recommend uh, you know putting them kind of side by side because uh, I'm sure there's even more things to think about. Very true. Yeah, and. Uh, if you're looking for anywhere to send some donations this month, this is, of course, a great time. Orphanages always mm-hmm. need donations. Look out always. to, you know, local youth shelters like that, women's shelters, domestic violence shelters, like all of those kinds of places. Thinking about the kind of people we saw suffer in these movies this month, right. you know, give back Definitely a little. 
Yeah, important. hits home, especially during the holidays. So just mm-hmm. check out what places in your community are looking for resources. Um, and then one little programming note. It's been a doozy of a year, and we have uh, more coming up in January. So we are going to be taking a belated holiday break, taking January off, and we will return in February with a new episode. Yes. So up next is the horror news with Amanda Headley. Stay tuned. Bye. Bye. Happy holidays, everyone. It's time for December's horror news. I hope none of you received any coal from Santa this year, or a visit from Krampus. Sending you all well wishes for a new year that's prosperous and full of adventure. Now, on to the horror news. The Grey Rooms is open for submissions for their Season 5 anthology and is seeking stories that will be found in a rated R horror film or HBO series. Violent acts, psychodrama, confrontational ideas, torture, and pulpy demonic explosion are topics that are all welcome. Oh, and by the way, the main character must be killed at the end of the story or the narrative heavily implies their impending demise. Story length is to be between 2,500 and 3,500 words, and the submission window closes on April 17th, 2022 at midnight Eastern Time. Find out more about the submission guidelines at https colon forward slash forward slash thegrayrooms.com forward slash season dash five dash submissions. Sunbury Press is now accepting submissions for an anthology titled Unopened Doors. Stories must be horror or dark fiction. They want to feel your dread, grief, anxiety, and fear when faced by an unopened door. Story length is between 500 and 7,000 words. Submissions will be accepted until February 15, 2022, until 11.59 p.m. Pacific Time. For more information, go to https colon forward slash forward slash horrortree.com forward slash event forward slash taking dash submissions dash unopened dash doors. Editor Julie Baza has put out a call for submissions to her queer Wild West Tales anthology. This hybrid subgenre must include at least one character who identifies as LGBTQ+, an element of speculative fiction, and a setting in the Old West or in a time and place of any other frontier. Story word count is between 3,000 and 10,000 words, and the deadline to submit is by February 28th, 2022. For submission guidelines, visit https colon forward slash forward slash j-u-l-i-e-b-o-z-z-a dot com forward slash submissions. The horror, dark fiction, speculative fiction online magazine Tales from the Moonlit Path is open for poetry and short story submissions for their bloody Valentine's Day issue. Word count limit on submissions is no more than 2,000 words, and the deadline to submit is the beginning of February 2022. Read the full submission guidelines at https colon forward slash forward slash tales 
moonlitpath.com forward slash submissions. Nose Touch Press will be open for submissions between January 1st and January 31st, 2022. They are seeking gothic novels and novellas that emphasize a sublime atmosphere of picturesque scenery, extraordinary exotic locations, mystery, and horror. Submission length is 35,000 to 60,000 words for novella and over 60,000 words for novel. To read more on the submission guidelines, visit https colon forward slash forward slash nosetouchpress.com forward slash call. Impulsive Walrus Books is seeking submissions for their Cthulhu Fakan anthology. The focal point of the anthology is to be about Cthulhu and a convention held at a hotel built as an altar to the great old god. What horrors or humor will happen at this convention? It is up to you as the author. Submission length is between 2,000 and 6,000 words, and deadline for submitting is April 15th, 2022. For more information, visit https colon forward slash forward slash impulsivewalrusbooks.com forward slash 2021 forward slash 06 forward slash call dash four dash submissions dash c-t-h-u-l-h-u dash f-h-c-o-n. Please note that even though The Late Night does its best to bring horror authors the most up-to-date information for publication venues, it cannot guarantee that all the aforementioned information will remain valid. All submissions should be considered tentative and subject to change. If you are a magazine or press that is interested in having your submission advertised on The Late Night, you can write to moanorlawrence at hotmail.com. Thanks for listening. The Late Night, a horror podcast, is brought to you by Moner T. Lawrence. Find us at monaria.com and The Late Night Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you.